You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Accord to the cloud. Okay, there we go. So, uh, some of you may not know, it's Star Wars Day today, uh, May the 4th. And uh, whenever Star Wars Day comes up, I'm always reminded of my, uh, my 20s when uh, I went to an Anglican church for a number of years. And uh, it might seem a little odd to have uh, uh, Anglicanism kind of tied in with Star Wars in my brain, but whenever somebody says, uh, may the force be with you, I always want to respond and also with you. So. <laughs> Like it's like ingrained in my brain. It's it's that 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 response and answer. I hear you. <laughs> so. <laughs> um, I'm gonna I'm gonna open in prayer, and uh, if you can all uh, mute your mics, I'd appreciate that, and uh, we will get started. Lord Jesus, uh, we just thank you that we can gather together tonight. Uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the inspiration that you gave to, to Peter uh, as he spoke uh, or wrote to the, uh, uh, the Christians in Asia Minor. I just ask, Holy Spirit, that you'd speak through each one of us or speak through your word tonight. Uh, speak through my words, Lord, and uh, that you'd give us open ears to hear what you have to say to us. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so 1 Peter 2, 11 uh, to 25, that's, uh, that's the passage we're going to be looking at tonight. And it starts with the word beloved. And this is an interesting uh, place to start because a number of you, uh, depending on the translations of the Bible that you have, uh, the subject will actually, the subject break will actually be between verses uh, 12 and 13, not between verses 10 and 11. And uh, Martin Cully, who's one of the people who I adapted a lot of the content uh, that uh, we're, I'm going to be presenting tonight, along with Scott McKnight and I, Howard Marshall, uh, but Martin Cully uh, suggested that the subject break would be better uh, to be done before verse 11 because beloved represented a shift in, uh, in thought. That before uh, the, this word beloved, the thought process that, that, that Peter was using, the ideas he was trying to uh, get through to the Christians in Asia Minor, revolved around their identities in Christ. And when he, when he uh, writes down the word beloved here, uh, because it's a vocative noun, in a lot of Greek, uh, Greek writing, both biblical and, uh, and uh, non-biblical, this represents a shift in thought patterns. And we can see this shift going forward because he goes from uh, explaining who the, the Christians were, who their identity was in. And now he's going to start talking, okay, so this is who you are. Now this is how you should live. David has mentioned this a number of times, that this is a theme that we see throughout the New Testament, that uh, the New Testament says, okay, here is who you are in Christ. You've been saved, you've been redeemed, and it's not because of anything you've done. Now, start living like it. 
So he uses the beloved to uh, make this transition. I think there's also an element of, of paternal affection there. My parents, uh, when they would uh, sit me down to basically let me know what I did wrong this time, um, a lot of times they would sit me down, dad would put his arm around me and was like, okay, buddy, so here's what you did. Here's what you did wrong. And there's this paternal affection. I think this is what Peter uh, is trying to get across here as well. He has a paternal affection for the Christians in Asia Minor. Uh, to an extent, he's been uh, one of their spiritual fathers. And so I think he feels this towards them. And there's going to be some difficult stuff that he's going to need uh, to get across to them. So by starting with Beloved, not only he's using it as a literary transition, but he's, he's basically softening the blow. It's the spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down. So verse 11, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. And verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Like pretty much everything in uh, this book, there is a ton of stuff packed in there, but it all revolves around two commands. Abstain from sin and keep your conduct honorable among, among the Gentiles. And so we're going to need to remember these two commands as we go forward tonight, because they're going to keep coming up in various uh, ways throughout the, the subject matter that we're going to be looking at, especially the keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. And he gives these two commands and he gives reasons for these commands. And so when he says abstain from sin, he, he basically brackets it. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. So where have we heard this, uh, this terminology, exiles? Anybody, you can un unmute yourself or you can uh, type in the uh, chat window. Where have we heard this exile terminology? Anyone? Can you guys unmute yourself? Chapter one, verse one. Yes, yes. Uh, thank you, uh, Laurie and Joseph. Uh, um, yes, at the very beginning of the book, we go back to First Peter one. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. He's telling the Christians in Asia Minor who they are. They are exiles. Part of their identity in Christ is that they're exiles. Now, David uh, got into this uh, on our, in our first class a few weeks ago uh, in great detail. So I'm not going to get into it in great detail, but it does, uh, it does behoove us to remember uh, what exile means. And so I think the modern understanding of exile is more the idea of refugee. So when we think of exiles, we think of, of people that have boot, been booted from their homeland for various reasons. 
You know, may, maybe they're a Christian who is in Iran and they are now in exile because if they go back, they'll be killed. Maybe they're, uh, they were living in Syria and they had to flee when ISIS came along. But that's not really the idea that Peter's trying to get uh, at when he talks about exiles. Rather, what he's trying to get at is this idea of, of temporary residence, this idea of a pilgrimage. And in terms of this command that he gives, abstain from the passions of the flesh, effectively what he's saying is your identity is... Um, is as an exile. You are uh, a temporary resident in this world. You're on a pilgrimage. Your home is not here. Your home is elsewhere. Similarly, the government you follow that you're loyal to is not here, it's elsewhere. And the king that you are loyal to is not here, he's elsewhere. And because this is your identity, because this is who you are, there are some expectations for your behavior. And the first one is abstain from the passions of the flesh, abstain from sin. This is not our home, so we shouldn't be acting exactly like the people whose home this is. There should be substantial differences in our actions versus the actions of those around us who don't know Jesus. Effectively, what Peter is saying here is that Christians are a peculiar people. And when we look exactly like the surrounding culture, a legitimate question we need to ask ourselves is, are we acting like Christ? The second uh, reason he gives to abstain from sin uh, is the found on the other side of the bracket uh, of the command, which is, it wages war against your soul. And it's an interesting combination that Peter uses here. Uh, passions of the flesh wage war on the soul. And one of the reasons he does this is because, though it's not as big a problem now as it will be uh, 10 to 20 years down the line, uh, a Christian heresy called Gnosticism is starting to uh, make the rounds in, in Christian circles. And Basically, it's uh, the body is bad and the spirit is good. And so because your spirit and your body effectively are separate entities, what you do with your body and in your body really isn't going to affect your spirit. So you can live however you want, and it won't affect your soul. When you die, your soul will go and be with God, and that's it. And Peter is saying here, no. What you do in your body deeply affects your soul. In fact, it wages war against your soul. And we can see this throughout the stories in the Old Testament. We can see in Genesis 3, uh, in the story of Adam and Eve, how sin destroyed their relationship with God. It destroyed them spiritually. It also had some uh, physical, some, some temporal uh, ramifications. They lost the only home they ever knew. They were cast out of the garden. 
And throughout the Old Testament and into the New, we see these examples where sin has an effect not just on our body, but on our spirit as well, on our relationship with God. And the response that some of the Christians of the time might have had were, well, Jesus has paid for my sin. Uh, I'm free now to live however I want. And Peter doesn't deal with this uh, nearly as much as, as Paul does. But, but Paul says, what shall we say then in, in Romans 6? What shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Paul's basically saying the same thing Peter is saying here. You need to abstain from the passions of the flesh. You need to abstain from sin because it wages war on your soul. The life of David exemplifies uh, what this uh, sometimes what this can look like in the life of a Christian. David has uh, 10 chapters in 2 Samuel where pretty much everything uh, goes right for him other than when he tries to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and he gets one of his friends killed. Other than that, pretty much everything goes right. And then chapter 11 hits and his whole thing with Bathsheba. And he sins and he sins and he sins and he sins and he ends up killing one of his loyal soldiers. And so now David is guilty of both adultery and murder. And chapter 11 ends with, the Lord was displeased. We go into chapter 12, and we see how displeased he is. And he sends Nathan the prophet. And Nathan basically lays out uh, David's sin before him. And David's response is, I have sinned uh, before God. And there's this moment of repentance. And Nathan tells him, you will not die. And so there is repentance there. The spiritual consequences of David's sin have been removed. But the physical consequences, the temporal consequences, were not. David's uh, son with Bathsheba still died. When Nathan uh, prophesied that the sword would never leave David's house, we see that coming true almost immediately with uh, his eldest son raping one of his daughters. And then Absalom, one of his other sons, killing his eldest son because of that, and then starting a civil war and dying himself. David's sin had long-lasting consequences, not only for himself and his family, but for the whole nation. And so when Peter warns us, abstain from sin, which wars against the soul, it's not just that it affects our, our spiritual walk with God. That's certainly the most important part, but sin destroys us. Sin just destroys. That's its function. And so when we abstain from that, we can avoid lots of disaster. So that's the first commandment that Peter lays down, first command that Peter lays down, abstain from sin. The second one is keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Now, the next phrase is that, so when they speak of you uh, against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. Once again, if you guys want to comment on this on, on the chat, uh, or if you just want to unmute yourself, what do you notice that's interesting about how he phrases this, uh, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds? 
any any thoughts on that? Any anything kind of uh, uh, springs to mind there? Yeah. Somebody going to say something? Yes. Yeah, so Kevin said uh, it's an uh, it isn't an if but a when. Persecution is basically a guarantee. Peter is guaranteeing it to the Asian Christians here. He's saying this is going to happen, not if this happens. Peter knows that uh, when these people start living like Christ, hatred is going to come their way. And you got to think that Peter, uh, out of everybody, uh, has an idea of this because he was there uh, in the Last Supper. And if we flip over to John 15, verse 18, Jesus says, If the world hates you, keep in mind, it hated me first. Jesus is basically laying it down to his disciples. The world hates me, and because you follow me, the world is going to hate you. And Peter's now laying this out to the Christians in Asia Minor. Persecution will be a when, not an if. And yet, despite the persecution, what is the expectation? Anyone? Be honorable. Yeah, be, be honorable and that you will have good deeds that people will say, will see, and that God will be glorified by those deeds. So the expectation uh, that is going to, we're going to keep coming back to uh, as we go through the chapter tonight is that uh, while bad things are happening, you need to continue to be doing good. You need to continue to be living an honorable life. Finally, um, the glorify God on the day of visitation. Uh, there are basically two interpretations of this. Um, one I thought was quite positive. Uh, one interpretation is that uh, the Gentiles will come to Jesus because of in whatever Christian the, this is, his, his or her good deeds. And they will glorify God on the day uh, the Lord returns because of the role that this person played in their salvation. That they will see these good deeds and though they persecute this person, though they speak evil of them, they will realize uh, that they were wrong and they will come to God and they will give glory to God uh, on the last day. That's a positive one. I, I, I like that one. The, the other one is, is less positive, and it's that the Gentiles will stay in their sinful ways. But uh, on that last day, when every knee bows and every tongue confesses on the earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord, they will be forced to admit that they were wrong and that the Christian uh, who lived for Christ and glorified God with his or her good deeds, uh, they were in the right. 
So what does, what does this look like uh, today? I would say that it looks very similar to today, that our call as Christians today is to live uh, exemplary lives, that uh, we have uh, a similar situation as to what the Asian Christians were going through in terms of the type of persecution. Keep in mind, they weren't being killed at this point. Most of the persecution they would have been facing would have been either uh, social persecution or economic persecution. So they either would have been um, prevented from, from doing commerce, from, from going into markets, um, so economic persecution, or there would have been social persecution. If you were a Jewish Christian, you might have been thrown out of the synagogue. Uh, if you were a Gentile Christian, you might have been mocked that you're following a, a religion that is uh, atheistic, uh, cannibalistic, and incestuous, uh, which were three of the things that uh, charges that were levied against Christians uh, in the first 300 years. Uh, atheistic because they didn't worship the Roman gods. Um, incestuous because they called everybody brother and sister, including their spouses and cannibalistic because they ate the body and blood of Jesus. And so we can see parallels to today where we may ex uh, experience both uh, economic or social uh, persecution. And I'm sure some of you have already experienced some of that to some level, especially social persecution. I'm sure some of you have had friends who have I mean, it's, it's all online now. Friends who have unfriended you because of your, of your faith. Um, family members that won't talk to you anymore because of some of the stances that you take because you follow Jesus. I don't know if anybody's had any economic persecution, but there are uh, people around who've lost their jobs because of the stances they've taken for the gospel. So, in the same way that uh, the early church in Asia Minor was facing persecution, uh, we face similar types of persecution today. Admittedly, it looks different, but at the basis, it's economic and social uh, persecution. So, this is a question now uh, for, for everybody to think about, and please chime in. Peter calls uh, Christians to live an exemplary life. Uh, what does a Christian looking, living an exemplary life look like today? You can unmute or you can type in the uh, chat window. Being ethical. Not acting in kind, being loving, <laughs> keeping tongues under control and using them to build others up. Yeah, being countercultural, not not given to malicious gossip. Yeah, exhibiting the gifts of the spirit, being sacrificial, helping others. Yeah, humility. That's huge. Yeah. Generosity, not cheating in any areas of your life. Yeah. 
and acting with integrity. Yeah. Yeah, these are all really, really good. How about submitting to the king? <laughs> Mostly we don't. Submitting to your authority, to whatever is your, around yourself. You have authority, you have to submit, you have to respect them, you have to obey them. Respect those in authority, yeah. Sub submit to those in authority, yeah. Sweet language, not foul, being grace-filled. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for that. So, uh, Peter has now laid down his two commands. Um, don't uh, urge to abstain from the passions of the flesh and to keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable. And uh, really keep your eyes, especially on keeping your conduct honorable, because this theme is going to keep popping up in uh, a number of subsections going forward. The next uh, subsection we're going to look at uh, is how you end up living these commands out in life. And what Peter is laying down here uh, is what's called uh, household rules. And you see these in other parts of, of scripture where uh, basically the writer takes a principle and then lays out specific examples that work into that principle. And so he's laid out the principles already. The principles are abstain from sin, live honorable lives. And now we get to the first example of what this looks like, submission to governing authorities. We start in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So we're going to look at this uh, passage now. Now, I find it interesting that Peter finds it necessary uh, to lay this out. And a lot of times in Scripture, if somebody found it necessary to write down the answer to a problem, it's probably because that problem was starting to crop up in the church he's writing to. Paul wouldn't have written about all the problems of, of uh, a lack of self-control in the church in Corinth if there wouldn't have been a problem of a lack of self-control in the church in Corinth. Similarly, if Peter is writing about the importance of submitting to governing authorities in the churches in Asia Minor, it's probably because there was a problem with Christians not submitting to governing authorities. Now, in the Roman Empire, this was problematic, to say the least. The Romans did not treat uh, rebellion particularly well. In uh, When this book is written is a couple years probably before uh, the first Jewish-Roman war starts. And it starts because the Jews in the Holy Land start rebelling against the Romans. 
the Romans sent in 80,000 troops and basically wiped Jerusalem off the map. They didn't treat it lightly. And so I can imagine that there's a practical element uh, for Peter here telling the people to be submissive to the governing authorities, because if they don't, if Christianity gets labeled as a, a terrorist organization by the Romans, this is going to be problematic for everybody. So submit to the government, but it's not even the practical reasons that, that Peter lays down. Rather, he lays down uh, a, a number uh, of reasons within, within the text. And the first one is that it's part of the order that God has ordained. Be subject for the Lord's sake. God has ordained the Roman Empire to rule over you at this time. And so submit to the governing authorities because of God, not because of the governing authorities themselves, which is good because the emperor at this time was a guy named Nero. Now, if any of you know anything about Nero, it's probably the uh, uh, apocryphal story that he fiddled while Rome burned. He probably didn't, but Rome did burn down, and he did find it uh, easy to, to scapegoat Christians uh, for that. And as a result, uh, it seems like a tradition holds that a number of important Christians, including Peter and Paul, were executed uh, during his pogrom. But even before that, Nero wasn't looked upon particularly nicely. He wasn't one of the worst Roman emperors like Caligula or Commodus, but he wasn't far off. He killed a number of his family members, including his mother. He levied huge taxes and then wasted it on expansive uh, program, uh, expansive building programs that were supposed to make him popular with the people. And in the end, basically, he lost control over the entire empire and committed suicide. So Nero wasn't a good guy. And yet he was the emperor at the time. And Peter is telling uh, his, his people, is telling his congregants, the members of the churches uh, in Asia Minor, to honor him, honor Nero. And we honor Nero in part because he is representative of the authority that God has devolved down to him. And we honor him not because of himself, not because of the quality of man that he is, but because of who he represents. And ultimately, he represents authority given to him by God. Universal submission to the government uh, also flew in the face of what the Romans, uh, what most many Romans acted like. Generally, uh, what would happen when a new Roman emperor would come, uh, come to the throne is that there'd be a number of years of civil war. Uh, army commanders or governors would, would rise up and would fight against the, uh, the presumptive uh, emperor sitting in Rome. And he would fight back. And if he was stronger, he would kill them all, all, all his enemies off. And uh, if he wasn't strong enough, he would be killed himself. And so what a lot of Romans would do is that when a new emperor would come to the throne, they'd throw their support behind either the emperor in Rome or one of his rivals. 
this idea of universal submission didn't fly within the Roman uh, state of mind. It was either I'm going to put my guy on the throne and I'm going to benefit from it, or some other person's uh, emperor is sitting on the throne and he is not my emperor. Instead, Christians were called to universal submission no matter who was on the throne. We see some elements of Jeremiah 29.7 uh, ringing through this passage as well. One of the reasons why we should be subject uh, and submissive to the governing authorities is that it leads to the flourishing uh, not only of us, but of our community. Jeremiah 29.7 says, um, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. We get that idea of, of a person living in exile here, and yet still being submissive to the governing authorities, working towards the flourishing of the place they are living in. And yet still, their uh, loyalty is towards God, and their citizenship is in the heavenly kingdom. The expectation Peter is laying down here is that Christians are to be good citizens even in extreme situations, and that societal change wasn't intended to be accomplished through violent rebellion. You know, if you don't like the guy on the throne, just take up arms and remove him. Rather, societal change was to be done through the witness of the faithful church. The second reason why um, Christians should submit uh, to the Roman government is that their good deeds uh, will silence the ignorance of the foolish. Now we see elements of verse 12 here. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. There's some elements of that here, but it is slightly different. Uh, your good deeds will silence the ignorance of the foolish suggests that there may be some element of the governor involved here. And we see the role of the governor in verse 14. Uh, the governor is sent by the emperor to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. So the idea is, if you're doing good and uh, you are accused of evildoing, and this is brought forth to the governor, in theory, if the governor is this dispassionate um, uh, arbiter of justice, where he will, he will deliver justice to you and it doesn't matter what he thinks about you, uh, he will see your good deeds. It'll be so incredibly obvious that you're innocent of what they're saying that the people accusing you will look foolish. It doesn't guarantee that people won't persecute you, but if the people persecuting you know that this is going to go to the governor and they know that the governor is going to uh, punish those who do evil and reward those who do good, they may reconsider because there's no way they can uh, accuse you of anything because of your good deeds. Your good deeds are, are so evident that uh, that's all people can see. Basically, this reiterates our witness uh, as a Christian. 
to persist in doing good, uh, even when we're opposed unjustly or persecuted foolishly. Just one moment, I just have to clear my The final uh, reason why Christians were to submit uh, to the Roman government is that it seems that one of the reasons why a number of them were not was because how they, of how they perceived their freedom in Christ. And you see this a little bit in Paul's writings as well, that Christians, uh, had, he, had, he had to tell Christians not to abuse their freedom in, in Christ. And what that may have looked like here is because the church in Asia Minor would have been made up of, of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, and both these populaces had the Romans come in and basically take over their areas that uh, potentially when they became Christians and they realized they were free in Christ, the next step was okay. Well, now we can we can bear arms. We can we can throw the Romans out. And then Peter is saying, no, no, we need to submit uh, to the governing authorities, and that the freedom we have in Christ uh, is to conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, including towards the Gentiles' government, as a witness and as a sign of the gospel. Once again, I mean, the Romans did not treat rebellion particularly lightly. So even if the Christians would have uh, risen up, they would have been crushed qu quite quickly. And so the intention of our free freedom in Christ uh, is to actually uh, be slaves to God instead of slaves to man. When we see the, the word in verse 16, living as servants of God, the Greek word is doulos. I think I'm pronouncing that right. And doulos actually means slave. It's translated here as servant, but in its original form, it means slave. So the idea is, is that, yes, you have freedom, but your freedom is to be a slave of God and to uh, enact God's will in the world now. And in this specific moment, how do you enact God's will? It's to honor everybody. It's to love the brotherhood, to fear God, and honor the, the emperor. I find it interesting that uh, this is the only use uh, of fear in this particular passage here, that he says, fear God. He doesn't say fear the Romans, even though the Romans had a powerful army. He doesn't say fear the emperor, even though Nero's will could send them to uh, the Colosseum to be devoured by wild animals. No, he says, fear God. Uh, McKnight uh, wrote down in his commentary, he said, uh, when you fear God, you don't need to fear anything else. And that leaves you free to honor everybody, to love your fellow believers, and to honor the emperor. So, Peter has given us uh, or given the uh, Asian Christians, uh, three reasons why they needed to submit to the Roman government. A legitimate question is, is there a limit to the Christian submission? Is there a line where uh, we need to draw on the sand, where we tell the government uh, this far and no further? 
And Peter doesn't say anything about that, at least not in his words in this epistle. But we definitely see it in his life. We see Peter interact with uh, earthly authority in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5. And in both cases, the Sanhedrin lays down the law to Peter and John and says, no, we are ordering you to stop preaching about this Jesus of Nazareth. And in both cases, Peter says, we need to obey God and not man. And this isn't the only example in scripture. We just uh, did a class on Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 3, we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego basically go to King Nebuchadnezzar, who's the most powerful king in the world at the time, and say, respectfully and humbly, we will not worship your golden idol. And if uh, we believe God will save us, if God doesn't save us, even then we won't worship your idol. And so there absolutely is a line that needs to be drawn, that submission to uh, governing authorities lasts up until the writ where, that God has laid down, where his law starts, where he says uh, something we cannot go against, no matter what the government would say. So what does this look like today? And uh, both McKnight, uh, Cully, and um, um, blanking on the last guy, uh, and Marshall, uh, they all have something to say about this. And uh, all of them mentioned that, honestly, we're in a vastly different world now than we than was Peter was talking to uh, in uh, in First Peter that we aren't underneath a tyrannical Roman government, that even the best emperors in, in the Roman Empire, uh, Trajan and, and Augustus and uh, um, Hadrian and some of those guys, even they were dictators who killed on a whim. We don't, have, we don't live in that situation. And so submission to authorities uh, may look different for us. In the end, if I don't like the person who's currently leading, uh, leading our country, the next time there's an election, I can vote against him. If enough people agree with me, he gets booted out, and there's a peaceful transition of power to whomever gets voted in. What does that mean for us as Christians? I think in that specific example, it means that we need uh, to pray before we vote. That when we go to the polls, we need to do so humbly and we need to do so with a prayerful attitude that uh, we are, as best we can, uh, living honorably among the Gentiles. We in Canada have the ability to, uh, to civilly disobey. So what does that look like in terms of us uh, keeping our conduct honorable? Because I think civil disobedience has been used uh, positively both in Canada and in America to enact change that was desperately needed. Women have the vote because of civil disobedience, because amongst them, many Christians uh, disobeyed the, uh, the law of the land in order to enact change because they realized this was important. 
the civil rights movement in the states happened uh, by and large because of civil disobedience. I think we need to continue to remember that uh, um, societal change uh, is not accomplished uh, by Christians through violent rebellion, but through the witness of a faithful church. And that sometimes this witness in a democracy like the one we live in might include civil disobedience. At the very least, at the end of the day, I think what it means for us to honor our, our government um, is to obey the laws that they have laid down and to pray for them. So, on those two ideas, obeying the laws that uh, the government has laid down and praying for them. Uh, we're going to do a Zoom breakout group, uh, or groups. And uh, I know it's a little bit awkward, and I know a lot of times there aren't a lot of people that, that, that want to talk in this, but you know, just lean into it. Um, if nobody else is, uh, is opening their mouths, be the first one to talk. And uh, the question I, I want you guys to discuss is are there areas in life today where we as Christians uh, find it easy to circumvent or ignore the laws of our governments uh, and honestly so dishonor God? God has given our government uh, authority when we abuse that authority, when we ignore it, we dishonor God. So what are some areas? And man, I, I put some areas to think about there, speeding, taxation, the wearing of masks. The first one is huge for me. I speed everywhere. And uh, since I started working on this class, every single time my foot starts going down to the, I'm like, you know what? I need to honor God. I need to drive the speed limit. And it drives me crazy. Why do they make it 50 through Port Moody? Anyway, I don't need to uh, ramble on about that. Um, I'm going to break you into... Mike, can uh, you restate the question one more time? I try and type sure. it out so people can see it. Uh, sure. Are there areas in life today where we as Christians find it easy to circumvent the authority of government? That was the general gist. That's the general gist of it, yeah. And, huh, I, <laughs> I should have looked at this before. I don't see the area for, or the button for breaking you into breakout rooms. I don't seem to have that. All right, so we're just going to discuss it uh, amongst as a group then. <laughs> and there's a deep sigh of relief. <laughs> so, uh, anybody want to uh, chime in? What are some areas that uh, uh, where we as Christians circumvent or ignore uh, the law of our government? What about keeping churches open? So you would suggest that keeping churches open, that we should violation be... violation of, of government, the way government's standing right now. Keep the doors locked as far as the government's concerned. Don't open so this, this would be the, the opposite of the question. This would be an area where we should... Uh, you, this is what you would be saying, is that we should bra be breaking the government's laws uh, justifiably. Uh, looking at God's authority over, over man's authority. Okay, yeah. And, and, that's, and that's one question um, that, that we, we could answer. Uh, I was more getting at areas where we don't have justification for, for breaking the laws of the land, like speeding. 
I mean, maybe if you're hurrying to the hospital or something like that, but by and large, when I'm late for work and I'm uh, ripping up Burnaby Mountain at 90 kilometers an hour, I don't have a justification for that. So that that's more where I was I was going uh, with this particular question. I got it mixed up because I do that all the time. Sorry. <laughs> I think one one area that comes to mind, not that we can do it right now because we have no border to cross, but um, um, you know, if you if you're tempted to, if you're bringing a lot of stuff back mm -hmm. across the border, to I don't know, not declare it kind of hide it yeah um, um yeah and and i haven't done that just to, just to <laughs> because it would i'd feel so terrible um doing it but i think it's a you're sometimes tempted <laughs> mm -hmm. uh laurie they actually know what's in your vehicle from about five miles out you are scanned i was with the government for a long time so they're, well, that's why they're, they're testing you for your honesty because we actually know everything in your car anyway. <laughs> Government me, at work, you know. Let me just quickly say, I don't think so all the time. Uh, because years ago, my in-laws had picked up a um, an antique bedroom suite from a from you know uh, an antique place down in the states, and they didn't mean to. It was it cost eleven hundred and ninety five dollars. And as they were crossing through, they said, do you have anything, how much, how much are your goods? And they said, 1195 and without thinking about it. And they said, yep, yeah, sure. You're good on your way. <laughs> was it, it, wasn't, it wasn't until they got about five blocks past the border that they went, Oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> so. so that's definitely one uh, crossing the border. A anyone else? Something small, but not putting money in the meter. Mm. I'll just be 10 minutes. I won't get a ticket. Yeah. Even though I'm supposed to put money in there. You know. What about robbing your employer of time? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Wasting time at work. Or bringing home the supplies for your house. <laughs> taking, taking office supplies. Yeah. <laughs> Look at that. Uh, a couple hundred sheets of paper just happened to be in my briefcase on the way home. How did that happen? Ah, uh, they have so many reams of paper there. It's fine. Parking in a handicap when you're not handicapped. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was going to mention that if nobody else did. Oh. <laughs> we think alike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And... Yeah, Sorry, does anybody else have any uh, any other thoughts on that? I've heard I've heard people justify uh, taxation uh, or like cheating on their taxes. Um, I used to a number of my friends used to be uh, um, in the service industry, so so waiters and waitresses, and uh, um, pretty much all of them would would uh, seriously lowball their um, their tips. And the general gist is like, well, I'm making hardly anything anyway, so this is justifiable. And and a number of them were Christians, and so I had an issue the, uh, about it at the time. But I figured I'm not a server, so I probably shouldn't say anything. 
and yeah, I think for me, speeding is a big one. I, uh, I need to continually be reminded um, that I should really be going the speed limit, uh, even if I don't agree with what the speed limit is in a particular place. I think the one that I often see and hear is um, if you're at a store and the cashier or you're going through McDonald's drive through and they give you the wrong amount of change back and you realize it, I think a lot of people think, well, there's been many times where that store has overcharged me for something or I got home and the apples were bad and they wouldn't take them back or something. So it's sort of a justification. Yeah. I do this because they did that. Mm. <laughs> And I find that that seems to be a human problem. I don't know that Christians are exempt from it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that wouldn't surprise me at all. And the reason I ask this question is because when we look at uh, a lot of these uh, decisions or a lot of these, these laws that, uh, yeah, we may disagree with them. I'm sure the Christians of Peter's time disagreed with a lot of the laws that the Roman Empire had laid out. But Peter's basically telling them, you don't have a justification for breaking it unless that law directly breaks God's law. He's basically saying, it doesn't matter how crazy the law is, you follow it until the point where uh, it, it crosses that line. And so I think we as Christians need to be aware of that. And we can disagree with a lot of the laws that uh, our, our government puts down. We can disagree with how much we, we get charged for ICBC. We can disagree with um, the, the amount of taxation we get. But in the end, as long as that's not crossing the line, I think Peter at least uh, uh, is basically telling us that it's pretty clear what our role uh, is when we keep our conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that we follow the rules, even if we disagree. Now, because we live in a, uh, a democracy, that doesn't mean we can't work to change them. That doesn't mean because there's a crazy law in the books that we can't uh, uh, work within the system to get that changed. And I think that we as Christians need to. I think we need to look at uh, at laws that are uh, irrational and laws that are, are just don't make any sense. And we need to work to get those changed. Not to mention the laws that specifically break God's laws, um, abortion laws or um, um, medical assistance and dying laws and stuff like that. But even stuff that is just, you know, a little nuts. There's no reason why we can't work uh, to overthrow the, or overthrow those laws, sounds so martial, uh, to get them changed. But working within the system So, submission to the government. The second one is uh, submission of slaves to their masters. Now, slavery was endemic in the Roman Empire during Peter's time, and it was a massive part of the Roman economic system. It was estimated that a third of the Roman Empire, a third of the people within the Roman Empire were slaves. And so if there's 30 to 50 million people, depending on the time, that means there was somewhere between uh, 10 to 20 million people that were slaves. There were two types of slavery. There was debt slavery, which was... Uh, you got into some financial trouble, you can't pay off your debtor, so you are enslaved until, by working for him, you pay that debt off. 
that was the less common form of slavery. The more common form of slavery was the kind we think of where somebody owns you. Now, being in Canada, a lot of our cultural understanding, a lot of our cultural norms come from America. And so when we think about slavery, uh, when our culture talks about slavery, usually we're borrowing it from the American understanding. And the American understanding of slavery is rooted in the experience of the African-American populace before the Civil War. And I got to say that that uh, version of slavery was very different from slavery in the Roman Empire, from the slavery that Peter was talking about. Now, that doesn't paint the slavery that Peter is talking about uh, positively, like it, it doesn't paint it in a positive light. But I would say that the slavery that Peter is dealing with is significantly less bad than what we see in America uh, pre-Civil War. And the fact of the matter is that a lot of theologians from the early 19th century used verses like this to justify the existence of slavery. And uh, I mean, quite frankly, that's just uh, a gross misapplication of scripture. Even slavery, slightly less bad as it was in the Roman, the, as it existed in the Roman Empire, when Christians started to become a larger force in society, that's when you started to see the, uh, the, disappear, the eventual disappearance of slavery as it existed. That when Christians uh, were able to uh, enact positive change, that type of slavery disappeared. And so the fact that they could try and justify it in 19th century America is it's crazy to me. I don't understand how they could possibly get that from scripture. So Peter gives slaves basically uh, two reasons to, to submit to their masters. We see this starting in verse 18. Uh, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin you are beaten, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Some translations say this is grace. So Peter basically says, um, you're following in the commandment that I've already given you in verse 12. Keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable. Slavery is a part of our system. We're not getting rid of it anytime soon. You're a slave. This is where God has placed you at this time. That doesn't mean you can't work towards your freedom. But this is where you are at this time. And so as a part of living honorably before Gentiles, as a part of your Christian witness uh, in the public realm, honor your master. Be subject to them with respect. Be a good worker. Be reliable. Be honest. Work hard. The example uh, when I was going through this I was thinking of was all the way back in Genesis, uh, the example of Joseph. 
And you see uh, in two different uh, situations in his life, Joseph uh, is enslaved. He's first enslaved uh, to Potiphar. And Potiphar sees what a trustworthy, uh, impressive uh, person that Joseph is. And so slowly he gives him more and more authority to the point where Joseph is running Potiphar's whole household. And the only thing Joseph isn't allowed uh, to touch is Potiphar's wife, which is ultimately how he gets thrown in jail because he is falsely accused of, of trying to rape Potiphar's wife. And he gets stuck in prison, and the prison warden sees the same thing in Joseph, sees how uh, honest he is, how hardworking he is, how reliable he is, and slowly gives Joseph more and more responsibility within the prison. That's the kind of attitude that Peter is exhorting uh, slaves in the early Roman Empire uh, to show towards their masters. And it's understandable that it would be way easier to show this uh, to a master who's good and gentle. The second part is that Peter's like, you know what? You need to do this not just for the good and the gentle. You need to do this for the unjust, for the evil master, for the master that beats you even when you do everything that he wants you to do, even when you're honest and hardworking and reliable. And when you do that, you're showing God's grace. And in doing so, in showing God's grace, in part, that is your witness, not just to your master who is uh, persecuting you and, and, and beating you, but also to the other slaves around you, maybe even to the master's family. So when we look um, when we look at this, when we look at Peter's commands, it's a little bit more difficult, I think, to to compare the situation um, for slaves and masters uh, to our system today than it was for uh, submitting to the government to our system today. And even then, the system of governments are different enough that you know there's a lot of comparisons that just don't uh, translate. And so when we look at something like uh, sub a slave submitting to masters, I think the closest example we really can get uh, is that of uh, our economic system, that of our employment. I remember when I was, uh, when I was in youth, uh, I'd just gotten a job at, uh, at A&W. And uh, we were going through First Peter, and uh, I made a sardonic comment about uh, how nothing's really changed. You know, they enslaved people in the Roman Empire. I'm enslaved to A and W now, and uh, I was joking about that. And because honestly, it is incredibly different for us now. The fact of the matter is, if I don't like my job, if I feel that I'm being persecuted in my job or I'm being abused in my job, I do have the freedom to up and leave and go somewhere else. And so because of that, so what we have to do is really pare it down to the base kind of ideas that Peter is trying to get across here. And the first idea I believe he's trying to get across uh, to the Asian Christians that also applies to us is that our behavior in all social relationships, including employment, should be driven by a desire to con conduct ourselves honorably by the good works, works we do for God's glory. 
in all social situations we find ourselves in. We should be uh, we should be working towards God's glory, and we show God's glory through the good deeds we do, through the way we live our lives uh, honorably. And that should be foremost in our mind. And I'll admit, I I forget that a lot. When somebody cuts me off in traffic, um, yeah, it's it's pretty easy for me to lose my temper. And that's even separated by a uh, by a car. It's easy for me to lose my temper when something goes uh, ill for me at work, when when somebody slags me behind my back. And yet, even in this those situations, I need to be aware of who I represent, whose country I'm a part of, who uh, what lord I am loyal to. The second thing I think we need uh, to pull from this is that our conduct in a job uh, is dependent on the roles and responsibilities that job entails and is not dependent on our opinion of our employer. And this ties a little bit back to our uh, how we honor the rulers of our land, that it doesn't matter their character uh, they are due honor because of the position God has placed them in. And I would say that there's an element of that uh, with our employers as well. They employ us, they pay us, they are due honor. Even when we disagree with them um, and the decisions they make. Now, once again, uh, I think we need to uh, be aware that when there is an expectation of... Uh, when there's an expectation of um, us breaking God's law, that once again, like it is in government, there needs to be a line drawn. Um, and that uh, if it comes down to it between uh, losing our job or breaking God's law, that the, the choice we have to make uh, should be obvious that we should obey God's law, even if it means uh, losing our job. So um, the next one is that, uh, yeah, so we have the freedom uh, to leave because we live in a democracy, as I said this before, we have the freedom to leave um, jobs where things aren't going our way, but there may be instances, and I say this very uh, cautiously, but there may be instances where we can better show God's grace by staying in a non-ideal situation. And I say this incredibly cautiously because I understand that uh, I'm not at any point suggesting that somebody stay in a job where they're being uh, physically or, or mentally or, or sexually abused. Not, not suggesting that at all. but. An example that uh, Scott McKnight gives is that it might be beneficial for somebody to stay in a job uh, where they've been a loyal, a hard worker for a number of years, and they are due a promotion. And because of uh, um, inter-office politicking, the office or the promotion uh, go and the corner office goes to somebody else that there may be uh, grace that can be shown by continuing to be a good worker, continuing to be honest, uh, continuing to be reliable, and showing people through that situation that um, who our king is, who we are loyal to, 
showing people in that situation uh, honorable conduct, and that by our good deeds, God is glorified. But as I said, I want to use that lightly because there's a lot of situations where leaving a job is by far the best option and might even be what God is leading you towards. And finally, if we suffer in our job because of our faith, we understand that this is both uh, commendable and Christian. This shows the grace of God. This shows uh, people uh, who our Lord is, and it shows people God's love through how we suffer. So to wrap up, we're going to look at verses 21 through 25. And in verses 21 to 25, uh, we see Peter laying down uh, our example for how we should suffer. So we've been talking about uh, suffering um, under the government, that uh, the government may uh, um, enact laws that are uh, in opposition to us, and yet we honor them. Our masters uh, may be unjust, they may be unkind, they may be cruel, but we submit to them. So how then do we go about suffering well? And it's through the example of Jesus. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you may follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Peter takes a lot of uh, imagery here from the Old Testament. Uh, does anybody know, without looking at your notes, uh, what uh, what passage he is uh, quoting here? Yeah, Isaiah. I, I put it right in the notes there. <laughs> but yeah, I'm sure many of us knew that it was Isaiah even before uh, the notes were read. Isaiah 53. Uh, starting in verse 3, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hid their faces, he was despised and we held him in low self-esteem, in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is a prophecy uh, pointing directly to Christ. And it's focusing on the suffering that Jesus uh, was to go through. And Peter is saying, you're going to suffer. Jesus told, tells us all, uh, they hate you because they hated me first. 
Peter says in verse 11, like there, you're going to be, sorry, verse 12, you're going to be persecuted. This is going to happen. People are going to speak evil against you. How do you suffer well? By following Christ, who is the pattern for your life. We see in Jesus that for our sake, he chose to submit himself to being reviled, to being abused, and ultimately to death. He didn't take um, um, equality with God as something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, and he took the form of a servant. He became human on our behalf. That alone would have been uh, suffering enough, let alone what he ended up uh, going through on our behalf. And so it is the example of Jesus and how he goes through suffering in his life that gives us the, the pattern for how to suffer well. That when we're going through persecution, when we're going through oppression, that it's the example of Jesus that gives us our marching orders. And that if he suffered persecution for us, how much more should we be willing to bear up under unjust governments or unjust masters? Do we have any, uh, are there any final questions? That kind of wraps up my, my thoughts for tonight. Um, yes, Philippians 2, 5 to 11, thank you. Did anybody have any, uh, any questions to ask before, we, uh, before I wrap up in prayer? Mike, I was wondering how does something like the American Revolution uh, fit into something like this? Because there were a lot of uh, godly men and women who resisted England. Uh, in Canada, we didn't. We did it peacefully, and it took till 1982 before we, we had technically, I guess, our excuse me, our own constitution. Um, so what about something like the American Revolution? That's a good question. Where they um, fought against a what they perceived as a tyranny. They didn't submit to uh, the emperor, in this case, the uh, yep. English Empire, etc. And I would say, I would say they argue. I, so first of all, I'm not. Uh, I've read up a little bit on the American Revolution. I'm not an expert on it by any stretch of the imagination. But I have read a number of theologians and, and economists and kind of working together um, that have suggested that it was primarily economic in nature. And so they were fighting less about oppression and they were fighting more about, um, about money. And so in the end, I mean, did God uh, honor, did God work through the people in America? I think he's worked through America. I think he's worked through Canada. Um, but I'm not sure in the end if, if one can say definitively that the decision they made was right. Now, there may be some Americans in the audience that are uh, vociferously opposed to me, and I, and I respect that. Um, th this would be my personal opinion. I would say that there might have been some a, a different role. I mean, you, you used Canada as an example, and yes, it did take to 1982 for us to get our constitution repatriated. But when we talk about time, like time frames, 
when you look at the Roman Empire, it took 300 years from, um, well, close to 300 years from when Christ died to the point where Christianity was made legal. So the fact of the matter is that we living today, we have a really, really short attention span. And so for us, since 1867 to, to 1982, that seems a long time. When we look at it uh, from a bigger picture of history, that's actually not that long at all for a country to become completely independent of the motherland. It, that's actually uh, quite a short amount of time in history. So I do think there's also some, some um, how we perceive history and, and our idea of, I mean, Canada being incredibly old at, how old are we, 150, 154? At 154, and some countries are like, yeah, hold my coffee, we're like 2,000 years old. How would anything- I guess I was just wondering, sorry, I, was, I guess I was just wondering if sometimes Peter speaking to individuals, so as an individual Christian, mm -hmm. when, like you say, I have a boss or whatever at work, uh, whereas sometimes countries are different, what countries do, which may be made up of Christians in those countries, but I just sometimes wonder, like, so I have no right to take uh, vengeance on someone as an individual, but if I am a police officer or I'm a person of a mm -hmm. corporate or whatever, that I represent the country, then the rules are somewhat different because the Old Testament allows for capital punishment and probably even the New Testament allows for that. While it doesn't mm -hmm. allow for it on an individual basis, it does allow for it as a society to make those. So sometimes I just wonder, so when America fought the American Revolution, like I say, it may have been individual Christians in there, yeah. but I just wonder if it's a different kind of thing when it's a country as opposed to an individual. And, and, I, think, and I think arguments can be made for that. I think you can definitely make a solid argument for the American Revolution. I would say that, first of all, my background is Anabaptist, so I'm pacifist kind of. Now, I've rejected a lot of that. Um, I don't have a problem with, with the, uh, us having an army or a police force, but um, I do think kind of my background is Anabaptist, and so that's kind of where I default to. But yeah, no, I, I think you can make an argument for elements of the American Revolution, just like I think you can make an argument for elements of, of World War II being justified. Um, it's just, as a whole, there ends up being significant problems when you start looking looking at it. So. Uh, sorry, how would anything change ever if we would always follow everything the government says? There must be a gray area, like protesting is not technically listening to the government. Yeah, and I did mention um, um, civil disobedience. I think protesting, protesting is legal, um, but then there's times when protesting kind of transcendence, transcends into civil disobedience. And I think we as Christians have to, if we decide we need to civilly disobey, that A, we need to be doing it um, for God's glory. So we need to make sure we are uh, civilly disobeying for something that uh, is clearly scriptural. And secondly, we need to be willing to accept the consequences. And if those consequences end up with us with a, being levied a massive fine or, or being uh, even thrown in prison for a time, I think we as Christians need to accept those consequences. Any uh, any other final questions? You can either type them in or uh, 
say them in the chat. Okay. Thank you very much, uh, all of you, for, for showing up. And uh, I'm going to close in prayer now. Lord, um, we live in a difficult time. And uh, one of the difficulties is trying to figure out how we as Christians uh, ought to live in uh, a situation that is very different from when, uh, when Scripture was written. And so I just ask for wisdom for each of us, God, when we encounter difficult situations, uh, that Holy Spirit, you would speak to us and you would give us wisdom to know how to best interact with these situations, that um, in everything that we say and do, we would be living honorable lives and that our good deeds would would bring glory to you, God. Ultimately, that is what we want to do. We want to bring you glory. And so help us to do that in every deed that we do, uh, large and small, whether it's as small as uh, just remembering not to speed. I thank you for my brothers and sisters. And uh, yeah, I just ask that you'd be with each one of us and uh, bring us back next week. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, right. Mike. Thanks, You're welcome. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks Mike. Awesome. Thank you. Great job, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.